0: Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, we reveal four dividend paying stocks our top managers own. Christine Benz reminds investors of the keys to financial success. Russ Kennel compares the asset growth of stock funds and bond funds. Christine Benz suggests a tax advantage tool for retirement planning. And financial advisor Kathy Curtis shares her approach to the planning needs unique to women. Let's get started. We share four dividend paying stocks our top managers own.
1: Each quarter, we take a look at the recent transactions of some top money managers, who we call our ultimate stock pickers. Today, we're looking at four dividend paying stocks that are among the most widely held within this group. Sixteen of our managers own Comcast. Morningstar awards Comcast a wide economic moat with a stable moat trend. We think Comcast's core cable business, which accounts for more than half of the firm's value, enjoys significant competitive advantages. The stock yields about 2% today, and we think shares are worth $47 a piece. Johnson & Johnson appears in the portfolios of 12 of the ultimate stock pickers. We think the company stands alone as a leader across the major healthcare industries, maintaining a diverse revenue base, a developing research pipeline, and exceptional cash flow generation. The wide moat firm yields about 2.7% we peg its fair value at $141. And 11 top managers own Pepsi and Cisco Systems. While Pepsi remains a beverage giant, its exploits now extend beyond this industry. In our view, a diversified portfolio across snacks and beverages is the crux of many of the company's competitive advantages. We assign Pepsi a wide moat. It yields about 3.1%, and we estimate shares are worth $140. Lastly, we think Cisco remains a networking equipment leader and continues to execute on its strategic focus of increasing recurring revenue by selling software and services to supplement its hardware products. We assign Cisco a narrow moat. It yields about 3.6% today, and we think shares are worth
0: $48. Six days a week, we deliver the latest news for investors. Just say, Alexa, enable the Morningstar skill, or visit Morningstar.com Alexa. Now, Christine Benz and Susan Jabinski from Morningstar, Inc. discuss the keys to financial success.
1: Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. This year, we've seen a lot of younger investors take an interest in the stock market, but Morningstar's Christine Benz urges them to remember that the keys to financial success are actually a little boring. Here today to discuss them is Christine. Christine, thanks for joining us today. Susan, it's great to be here. So you, you've you told a story before about how you have many friends, I assume, but this story was about one particular friend who asked him, asked you to take a look at his portfolio because he was a little bit concerned about it. And when you did that, you sort of thought, well, the portfolio is fine, but there are some other issues here that are actually more important. What were some of those issues?
2: Well, it was interesting. He had gotten some advice from a financial advisor who thought, well, your portfolio is really lacking in small caps. This advisor also thought he needed a variable annuity, which is a separate matter. But when I dug in, what I found was that there really wasn't a portfolio problem. His portfolio was pretty neutral relative to what I would think someone at his age should have. But the real problem spots were, unfortunately, that that I thought he was undersaved, For retirement relative to where he should be at this life stage. And he's also a contractor, so I just didn't think he had enough of an emergency cushion to protect him in case he had some period of extended job loss. So my advice to him was, I don't really think that we can solve your issues at the portfolio level, but I do think that there are some things that you can do that are maybe a little bit more boring, maybe uh, less fun, but some ways to improve the overall health of your plan.
1: One of the things that is, as you say, a little bit mundane, but is really crucial in the process is having an appropriate savings rate and sticking to it. What are some recommendations you have for people if they're trying to establish what the right rate is for them?
2: Yeah, this is something that I think is so dead obvious that we tend not to talk about it a lot in financial planning circles. But it's really important to make sure that throughout your career, you're maintaining a healthy and appropriate savings rate. So one of the best ways to do that is just to make sure that you are nurturing your earnings power, which is sometimes called your human capital in the investment world. So making sure that you are just making yourself as valuable as you can be as an employee. So staying employed is one of the best things that you can do for the long-term health of your financial plan. Also setting a savings target. In fact, I sometimes think investors get overly granular in terms of looking line item by line item through their budget. Instead, maybe just start by saying, here's the amount of dollars I wanna save each month and then retrofit your budget accordingly and upgrade that savings target as your earnings power grows. I also think it's tremendously important to, marry someone or have a partner who is compatible with you from the standpoint of recognizing the value of long-term savings. We did a discussion in Morningstar's Discuss Community a few years ago where we asked our readers, what were some of the most impactful secrets to their success? And one thing that came back to us again and again was the value of marrying someone or partnering with someone who's really compatible with you financially.
1: Another key um, thing that you say is important when, when saving for retirement and other goals is to make sure that you're playing good defense. Uh, how, do you, how much do you go about doing that?
2: Well, I think it's like everything in life, Susan, it's wise to hope hope for the best and plan for the worst. So a couple of key things that I think about in the realm of defense would be making sure that you have the right type of insurance coverage given your life stage. So obviously, you want the basics like health insurance, like uh, disability insurance, Uh, Life insurance, certainly if you have dependents, as well as some of the property and casualty coverage. It also relates to emergency funding. So right-sizing your emergency fund. If you're a contractor like my friend, you'd want to have a larger emergency fund because sometimes those periods of job loss can be longer than is the case for people who are fully employed. Also, protecting your credit rating and being judicious about using Those are all things that I put in the category of playing good defense and they can set you up for good financial health down the line.
1: And what about from a portfolio standpoint, what are some keys to success when building a portfolio?
2: Well, as you know, Susan, I'm a big believer in keeping things quite simple at the portfolio level. The biggest determinant of how your portfolio will behave over time will be your baseline asset allocation. So your ratio of very safe assets relative to assets that have more growth potential, but more volatility. People who have very long time horizons to retirement can take more risk in their portfolios in exchange for the prospect of higher returns. But people getting closer to retirement need to take some risk off the table. So just making sure that you have an appropriate asset allocation framework. If you don't have an appropriate asset allocation framework or don't know where to begin getting a target, uh, a, a target date fund can be a great starting point. Also, that would entail taking advantage of all the tax-sheltered vehicles that you have available to you and automating your contributions on an ongoing basis. So making it really easy and painless to save, those are all things that can can contribute to long-term financial success.
1: Christine, thank you so much for your time today and sort of these get-rich-slow tips. We appreciate it. Thank you, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski for Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in.
0: Watch all the Morningstar content you love from your living room. Download the Morningstar Roku channel and get up to date independent insights on today's markets. Be comfortable. Be informed. Next up, Russ Kennel from Morningstar Research Services compares the asset growth of stock funds and bond funds.
2: Hi, I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. Can bond funds grow large more gracefully than stock funds? Joining me to share some research on this topic is Russ Kinnell. He's Morningstar's Director of Manager Research and Editor of Morningstar Fund Investor. Russ, thank you so much for being here.
3: Glad to be here.
2: Russ, in the latest issue of Morningstar Fund Investor, you delved into a topic that was based on an observation you had, which was that you noticed that bond funds seem to be able to get very large and maintain their performance Uh, perhaps better than stock funds. So let's talk about what the data say today when you look at performance of very large bond funds. How do they do relative to their peers? And then let's contrast that with what's going on in the stock fund universe.
3: Sure. So what I did was I I looked at uh, actively managed funds. This isn't an index fund issue. Actively managed funds uh, with assets over $20 billion. And I began simply by uh, just looking at uh, their trailing 10-year return. So looking at assets today uh, and looking backwards. Uh, and sure enough, um, if, you, if you do it that way, uh, the, the top average uh, big bond fund uh, had top 21%. So top quartile uh, performance uh, equity funds were top 29%. So uh, definitely an edge for bond funds, but looking at it from that perspective, Uh, Both groups did pretty well.
2: So you decided to take a look backward, though, because in some respects, the data you were looking at conflates uh, asset size and, and fund returns. So let's talk about why you decided to go back 10 years and looked at how funds that were large 10 years ago subsequently
3: did. That's right, because when you look at assets today and you're looking at returns going back, Uh, you have to recognize that, of course, assets today reflect past returns. So a fund that appreciates more is more likely to be big, but also it's going to get a lot of assets coming in. Uh, And then uh, so really when you look at big funds today, to a degree you're kind of looking at a winner's list. So uh, a little more scientific way is to instead say, what if I started with a list based on AUM 10 years ago? Because, of course, that's what I would have had to look at If I was choosing a fund based on AUM 10 years ago, it would have been using the the assets uh, 10 years ago. So it's better to go back then uh, to, to the funds that were big 10 years ago and then look at the returns over the ensuing 10 years.
2: So what did you see when you did that, when you looked at very large bond funds 10 years ago, as well as very large stock funds 10 years ago? How did they end up doing? It sounds like the returns were a little less impressive relative to their peers.
3: Exactly. So uh, they still outperformed as a group, but not as impressively as my original look. So uh, the typical bond fund was top 30%, uh, and the typical big equity fund was top 41%. So uh, definitely an edge to bond funds. Again, uh, kind of uh, backing up my observation that it seems uh, like big bond funds handle uh, asset growth uh, a little better than big stock funds.
2: So the next step in your research process was to try to disentangle to what extent did Bond funds outperform because they have very low expenses, which sometimes are associated with larger funds. So, let's talk about what that exercise yielded in terms of research findings.
3: Yeah, so as you said, um, the bigger a fund, generally uh, the cheaper, because uh, fees come down as funds get bigger. Uh, what happens is the fund companies share some of their uh, economies of scale uh, with investors. Um, other than Vanguard, they don't share them all. Uh, They keep some of that as profit or maybe a lot of that as profit, but fees do come down. So of course the question is, is it simply a matter of having lower costs or is there something more to it? So now uh, my final screen is go back to assets 10 years ago, but then look at gross returns over the ensuing 10 years. Uh, Gross returns are what we call Uh, returns where you add expenses back in. So essentially, the portfolio return regardless uh, of of fees. So when we do that, uh, all of a sudden, the picture becomes very different. Uh, The typical bond fund's average, big bond fund's uh, gross return is top 55%. So in other words, slightly below average, the typical equity fund, uh, 49%. So right at the average. Uh, so what that tells me is that, in fact, fees accounted for all of that uh, performance edge. So yes, big funds have delivered pretty good results, but all of that uh, was, resp- was caused by low fees.
2: So what are the takeaways for investors from this? I'm, I'm guessing that one of the big ones is just to keep on focusing on fees like you're always telling people to do. Anything else that people should take away?
3: Um, yeah, I, th- I think you're right that for sure uh, this tells me look for low fees uh, regardless of AOM. Uh, it also tells me that um, big funds don't have uh, much of an advantage. And, and to a degree, I think it means uh, that that uh, the fund companies could probably do a better job of uh, sharing those uh, economies of scale. And certainly, I'm looking at active funds here. And as over this 10-year period we look at it, you look at what's going on with index funds, they're racing to cheaper fees. And so I think um, index funds are are raising the bar. And I think it really behooves the fund companies of these big active funds to offer a better deal to investors. Either if you think assets are hindering returns, then close sooner. If they're not, give your investors more of those economies of scale, cut fees more aggressively uh, so that you can still deliver uh, strong returns.
2: Okay, Russ, really interesting research. Thank you so much for being here to share it with us. You're welcome. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar.
0: Now, Christine Benz and Susan Jabinski suggest a tax advantage tool for retirement planning.
1: I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. When it comes to saving for retirement, many investors rely heavily on tax-sheltered accounts, like 401ks or IRAs but the account with the most tax advantages may actually be alongside your health care coverage. Joining me today to talk a little bit about how health savings accounts may be useful retirement planning tools is Christine Benz, Christine's Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance. Christine, thanks for being here today. Susan, it's great to be here. Now, before we delve a little bit into how HSA's could be used as retirement planning tools, let's take a step back and first talk a little bit about HSAs in general and what sort of the standard uses for them.
2: Well, HSAs, health savings accounts, were originally envisioned as a way for people who are covered by high deductible health care plans to cover the out-of-pocket co- out expenditures that they, that they have. So it's a tax-advantaged way for people to defray those costs as they incur them. So that's the traditional use where you would use some sort of a true savings account, and you are getting three tax benefits along the way. So you're putting in pre-tax dollars, you're experiencing tax-free compounding, and then if you use the money for qualified healthcare expenditures, then those withdrawals will also be tax-free.
1: Now let's say you're using an HSA account to cover, you know, ongoing health costs. So then you're not really getting those three tax advantages. You're, you're not getting the middle one of the tax free compounding, right?
2: Right, because chances are, if you're using an HSA in this way as kind of a spend-as-I-go vehicle, and incidentally, that's how most people use their HSAs, the money really isn't accumulating. It's not invested in anything with much of a return. So that tax benefit that you earn um, there in the middle just really doesn't add up to a significant sum for people who are using uh, an HSA in kind of the classic use case.
1: Now, you've talked about using HSAs specifically to help fund long-term care uh, in retirement. So that's, of course, for people who are not needing to use that HSA on a regular basis to cover medical expenses. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about that.
2: Right. I think this is something that older adults in particular should think about if they are worrying about long-term care. And I've talked to so many older adults who have Long term care is kind of a top of mind concern. You can use an HSA in in really two main ways to cover long term care. One is that you can cover your premiums, your long term care insurance premiums, with your HSA. The IRS sets certain limits on how much of your premium you can pay with an HSA, and it does depend on your age. So you'll need to look that up. But that's one way. If you have purchased a policy, you can. Uh, use the HSA to pay those premiums. The second way would be to simply let the money go, grow, get it invested in some long term assets, and then later in life, if you incur long term care expen- expenses, you could spend from that account to cover them. So those are really the two main ways. But I think, especially for people who are funding their HSAs pretty heavily, it's a way to think about perhaps tackling those long term care costs.
1: Now, let's say you've done a great job funding your HSA, and you haven't you know, tapped into it, and you've saved it, and then you find that you actually don't have a need for those dollars. Your, your health-related expenses aren't that
2: great. What then? Well, you have a couple of escape hatches. One is that if you have been paying out of pocket, if you've been using non-HSA assets to cover your health care costs over the years with an eye toward investing your HSA and letting it grow. The good news is is that if you have documentation about those healthcare expenses that you've paid with other funds, you can use your HSA at any time for any reason, even for non-healthcare costs. And you can use the receipts from previous years to justify those withdrawals. And so those withdrawals would be tax-free. Another um, thing to think about though is that if you are post age 65, your HSA at that point becomes a lot like a traditional IRA if you use it for non health care expenditures. So you have enjoyed tax deferred compounding on your money as it has grown, but if you pull it out for non health care expenditures, the money would be taxed as ordinary income, just as it would in your traditional 401k or in your traditional IRA. But you've enjoyed that tax-deferred compounding and you were able to make pre-tax contributions. So that's another um, thing to think about. Those, Those withdrawals post age 65 aren't subject to any penalties beyond the ordinary income tax that you you do. So I really think that investors, especially those with the wherewithal to fully fund their HSAs, should think about doing so because there's just not that much of a downside.
1: Yeah, it sounds like it really is a great tool to have in the kit when it comes to retirement planning.
2: It is, and especially it's attractive to people who either have high incomes who can pay their healthcare costs separately um, and not leave the HSA funds. And also for people who have not a lot of healthcare costs and who really are in the best possible position to leave their HSAs undisturbed. So those are the perfect candidates for this strategy of using an HSA as a retirement savings vehicle.
1: Well, Christine, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in.
0: And lastly, this week, Christine Benz interviews financial advisor Kathy Curtis about women's unique needs as investors.
2: Hi, I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. How are women's needs as investors different than or similar to their male counterparts? Joining me to discuss that topic is Kathy Curtis. She's head of Curtis Financial Planning, and in her practice, she focuses on female clients. Kathy, thank you so much for being here.
4: Christine, thank you. I'm really excited to talk to you about this topic.
2: Well, it's great to have you here. And you were also a panelist at our Morningstar conference. So let's talk about female clients. You're focused on serving women. And one thing we know about women is that we tend to live longer than our male counterparts. So how does that affect how you approach planning for them, especially constructing their retirement plans?
4: Yes, absolutely. Um, I think women live about five years longer than men on average now. That's the statistic I keep reading. And what I do is I'm very conservative in my assumptions about longevity. For example, I use 95 as the average age that that people will live. Um, I use very conservative return assumptions in my plans, five to 6% throughout. I use 3% inflation rates, 4% 4% for uh, medical, 5% for any education costs, and also I always, always include a long-term care expense at the end of life where I add maybe fifty dollars to $100,000 per year and I inflate that at 4% because most women will end up either going to a retirement community or needing some kind of care. So on top of all their normal expenses, I make sure I have those conservative assumptions in there.
2: Can you explain that long-term care piece, Kathy, because um, it might not be intuitive why women would tend to have more of a need for paid long-term care?
4: Yes. Well, because women end up living longer than men, and that five years is critical, at that point in life, and it's statistically true, most people will need some kind of long-term care help. Medicare doesn't cover it. If they may need someone to come into their home, um, they may need to move to a retirement community or advanced care nursing home. And you, if you've ever visited a nursing home, you see that the majority of people in those places are women, right? They're, they'll 80, 90% even are women. And it's expensive. And long term care insurance is expensive. Most people can't afford the premiums. So women definitely need to plan for that event in their life. It's probably going to happen.
2: So you mentioned that you try to be conservative overall, Kathy, but speaking of conservative, um, fixed income investment yields are really, really low today. So it seems like a prescription for many of us will be to hold more equities, but historically, or when you look at some of the studies that have been done, women tend to take less equity risk in, in their portfolios First of all, do you find that with your clients? And secondly, if you do, how do you counter that and get them to take an appropriate level of risk?
4: Right. I hear that all the time that women are risk averse. However, women that hire advisors like me tend to let the advisor make the investment decision. So what I mean by that is they hire me because they don't know what to do with their money, right? So we have the conversations about risk. I I talk to them about it. I do a plan for them. And the plan really determines how much risk they need to take, right? What return do they need to have to reach their long-term goal? I also use things like risk tolerance questionnaires. When that's all settled, I put them in an asset allocation that makes sense for their particular circumstance. They trust me. That's why they hired me. They let me make the investment decisions. And we go from there. Now, there is a little bit of a problem with that in that not all women make their way to a fiduciary advisor that's going to work in their best interest, right? They may find an advisor that isn't under a fiduciary standard and isn't really focused on the person's goals. And I think that's, that's really unfortunate. And that's why the work of Morningstar, NAPFA, FPA, XYPN is so important in promoting advisors that do this fiduciary work for their clients.
2: Another thing that we hear about women, um, in addition to this sort of risk aversion thing that has been out there for a while, is that women tend to be more goal-oriented than their male counterparts. So they're not really concerned with beating benchmarks. It's more like, can I achieve this goal of sending my kids to college or uh, paying for retirement or whatever it might be? Do you find that your female clients are quite goal-oriented in this way?
4: Absolutely. Once we get the investment policy statement in place, and I go to work on that, all of my meetings with my female clients are focused on their goals. It's either their long-term goals or immediate financial issues that come up. Rarely ever does the word benchmark ever come up in our discussions. And it's, it's really surprising, um, and I think, again, it goes back to that trust they have put in me to, to manage their money well and in their best interest. Also, at least my female clients admittedly do not have the education to, to know about benchmarks and things like that, nor do they have the interest to delve in and learn about them, and they admit that. But they do know, they're smart, they're savvy. They know they need to be invested appropriately to reach their goals.
2: Last question for you, Kathy. We're in the midst of this pandemic. It's upended a lot of our lives. People are living and working differently and thinking in some ways, big picture about their lives. So are you encountering that with your clients that your clients are really revisiting assumptions and maybe making large scale changes at this point?
4: Oh, yes. I'll just tell a really brief story. I have a woman, she's a widow. She's in her 70s. And last year, she decided to sell her family home. She'd been there 40 years, raised her kids, moved to a a nice retirement community, buy an apartment. I'd helped her with the financials and all that. Well, she's now getting closer to the date for moving, and she is just really scared that she's not going to be able to have visitors. She's a very extroverted woman. She loves her friends. She loves her family. Retirement communities are not letting visitors come. So she doesn't want to move in right now. She's less afraid about getting COVID than she is about not being able to see her friends and family. And I work with a lot of independent women, single women, and I'm finding the loneliness and that is, is really the biggest concern. It's not so much about financials and things. It's more emotional. In the financial picture, I'm finding that working women, many of them are seeing um, small pay cuts or their bonuses are being suspended. But at the same time, people aren't spending as much, right? There's not as many places to spend money. So it's kind of evening out for now. But my goal is to keep them on that lower spending budget after this is over.
2: Well, that's a related question is how wise is it to make really big decisions at this time in what's a strange and what we hope will be an abbreviated time period that this won't go on forever?
4: Yes, that's true. I, You know, I work at the San Francisco Bay Area, highly expensive place to live. Some of my younger women clients are getting ready to move out of their apartments. And first off, they can work anywhere, at least for now. And they figure, why spend the money at the higher cost of living to live in the city? But you know what? Things could change. They may not be able to work at home in the future. So I'm, I'm working through a lot of those kind of decisions right now. It's definitely a strange time.
2: Kathy, it's great to get your perspective. Thank you so much for being here.
4: Thank you, Christine. I enjoyed it.
2: Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar.
0: That does it for this week's Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services, LLC, is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal.